0: This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to People Talk. People Talk is about getting ahead at work, becoming a leader, establishing your personal brand, and motivating yourself and those around you. Hosted by Angela Hall, who has decades of experience working in the field of human resources, you can expect lively discussions about topics like workplace politics, dealing with difficult employees and clients, creating an inclusive
1: workplace, and jumpstarting your career. Here's your host, Angela Hall. Hello, everyone, and welcome to People Talk. People Talk is where we talk about everything related to HR, career, balancing, work, and family. Today I am thrilled. I have Professor Frank Dobbin, who is the Henry Ford II Professor of Social Sciences in the Department of Sociology at Harvard University. Um, Frank has a BA from Oberlin College and his PhD from Stanford. I can tell you that not only is Frank an amazing researcher and very well regarded, when I was talking about this topic, people were like, you got to get Frank Dobbin. He's just so easy to talk to and just an amazing person. So thank you so much, Frank, for joining us today. And I would love to hear um, you talk, and that's why I brought you on, about um, your ideas about diversity training and how we can make organizations more equitable places. So thank you.
0: Pleasure to be here. I'm also a big fan of your work. So it's very nice to talk to you.
1: Thank you. Um,
0: Thanks for having me. Uh, For the last about 20 years, my main collaborator and I, Alexandra Kalev, who's at Tel Aviv University in sociology We have been trying to understand the effects of different kinds of corporate diversity programs by looking at data from about 850 companies over 30 years. And um, we match federal data from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that employers have to send in every year with our own retrospective survey data where we're tracking what kinds of interventions companies have over time like the years in which they had diversity training and the years in which it was mandatory or the years in which they have flexible scheduling programs and the years in which they have mentoring programs for everybody so we put these two sources of data together and we can get a pretty good picture with tens of thousands of observations of uh, a corporation uh, in a particular year Across these 800 or so companies we can get a pretty good picture of what kinds of interventions lead to increases in diversity so what we're usually looking at is what moves the needle on managerial diversity because that's the that's the job category that has been the his, historically the hardest to diversify and i'll say um, we've written quite a bit about this we're now trying to finish a book on it and The big picture is that as executives and as um, uh, leaders of corporations see it, the problem is in the heads of individual managers. The problem is really with individual level bias and discrimination. And so a lot of the practices that have come to be popular are practices that address or try to address managerial bias and bad behavior, discriminatory behavior. So under that umbrella, I would include most kinds of diversity training that are often designed to make managers aware that they're biased. Since the late 1960s, federal agencies and corporations have been doing diversity training that is Anti-bias training—they've done it in somewhat different ways, but the whole idea is to get people to stand back and realize, "Oh, I am biased, so I have to watch myself." And that is a very appealing approach to trying to to change the workplace, in part because you can do it in a very um, one-shot kind of way. You can offer people this thing. You don't have to change how you hire people, how you promote them, how you mentor them. You don't have to change how meetings operate. You don't have to, you don't have to change what the structure of the work groups is. You just kind of do that as a one-shot deal once, once a year. And with some hope that people will change their behavior, their discriminatory behavior, because they realize, they realize that they're biased. But our research shows that that mostly doesn't work. The typical diversity training um, intervention doesn't lead to increases in managerial diversity, and that's mostly because you can't change bias. You can't, in an hour or in a day, change the stereotypes people hold in their heads. You can. And you, uh, in particular, can't change them permanently. So, that general approach just hasn't been very successful. Um, so, I have a couple things to say about diversity, um, uh, about, equal, about civil rights grievance procedures, and about um, uh, the rules that uh, HR departments put in to prevent managers from acting on discrimination. So um, when it comes to civil rights grievance procedures, there's a similar idea that managers are biased, that's the main problem. They're acting on discriminatory predilections and the the way to prevent them from acting on those predilections is to put in a, a grievance process or a kind of internal A system of litigation where you can bring your manager up on charges of discrimination, or in parallel of harassment. Usually, they're separate processes. Um, We we find that companies that that after companies put these in, they mostly see pretty significant decreases in managerial diversity. In part, because grievance procedures don't really address problems. And that's for several reasons, but the main reason being people don't file complaints against their bosses because they know that for the most part that just means they're gonna to have to leave their job. Um, so uh, bosses generally aren't afraid of grievance procedures and when somebody does file a complaint, there are many long-term studies of the effects of filing a grievance on your against your boss. and. Most people lose their job, they end up worse off than they started. And it's often due to retaliation, sometimes retaliation from their manager, who of course is not gonna be happy that somebody has filed a complaint against them. And sometimes it's retaliation from their coworkers, the friends of the boss, or the other people who work for the boss, who are worried that if they appear to be on your side, they're also at risk of losing their job.
1: Frank, I have a question. Have you uh-huh. seen, um, or has your, uh, have any of your studies borne out just the emotional toll of going through a grievance type of practice, the length of time, and in that contributes to people's dissatisfaction as well? Have you seen that?
0: You know, there are three terrific books that document this so well. Um, one is by Vincent Rossigno at Ohio State. Um, one by Lauren Adelman at UC Berkeley, and one by Ellen Barry, who's at University of Toronto, and Robert Nelson and Laura Beth Nielsen, who are at Northwestern. So um, these three. So the last one is called Rights on Trial. That's the Berry, Nelson Nielsen book. Um, the Edelman book is called Working Law, and the Rossigno book is, I'm forgetting the name, I think it's his, it's, it's from around 2007, and these all um, document how badly people are treated after they file a complaint, and the, 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 some of the stories in these books are just harrowing, Um, You see people who who faced real serious on the work, on the job sexual harassment from their managers, tried to deal with it behind the scenes, um, eventually lodged a complaint and are just summarily fired or um, they face very serious retaliation um, on the floor. Sometimes the, the behavior continues, the harassment or assault continues. Uh, many of the people end up end up without jobs. Uh, so, I you know, the, and these are all sociologists um, and uh, and legal scholars. So, um, who've written these books, and I I I can't recommend them more highly if you're in this field, just to see what people report. Because you know, sometimes if you're in management, you don't necessarily see what's happening to the people who. Who complain and then who end up leaving the, the organization.
1: Makes sense. I um, what advice then Frank would you give to organizations that are trying to have a climate of equity and inclusion and to increase the diversity within their organizations.
0: I think it can be hard to address the climate issue directly. Um, And to be honest, a lot of firms try to try to address the climate issue with diversity training. um, And with uh, like, I mean, sometimes uh, the training will be oriented to um, uh, social inclusion, to um, uh improving behavior to creating an anti-bullying environment, I, I don't think we have a lot of evidence that that kind of training is effective. So, but we do know from studies over quite a few decades that um, somehow reorganizing the workplace so that people come into contact more frequently and work alongside people who are unlike themselves um, we know from early contact study theories that, or, or research, that that's one of the best ways to, to change how people be- behave in the environment. And so, I'm I'm a fan of trying to change how the work, how the organization of work, uh, happens. So, my my colleague Alexandra Kalev, for example, has a has an interesting study looking at rotational training for managers and self-managed work teams. So both of these things, so, well, let me back up. The problem in many organizations is that the organization is diverse, but the work group isn't diverse. So you may be in an organization that's 50% female and uh, 50% male, 20% African-American, 10% Hispanic, 70% white. But if you're a Hispanic woman, you're probably working with other Hispanic women because jobs are so highly segregated. If you're a white man, chances are you're working mostly with other white men. And so while it looks like the organization is diverse, you, individuals may not really be interacting or working directly alongside people from other groups. So, um, Sandra's study of of self-managed teams and of rotational training shows that when companies put these in, so what a, well what they do is they mix up who people work with. So, in rotational training, if you're if you eventually want to become a manager, they'll put you in different departments for a month or two each. So when a when somebody who's heading toward a job in finance spends a month in hr or in marketing they're going to encounter people unlike themselves most people who go into finance are white in marketing in hr you're more likely to have people of color so it that kind of training system instead of just conventional training where you sit in the classroom and the company brings in trainers um, that can mix up who you're exposed to and it can begin to change what the interaction patterns look like in a firm and can begin to break down boundaries between groups. Um, and self managed teams it's sort of the same thing, so a self managed team might include some people from marketing some people from finance some people from product development and those people are usually from different groups or often they're from different groups. And it's also the case that the fact that it's self-managed means there's nobody necessarily in charge. You're working together, trying to make decisions together. So people, because it's not so hierarchical, you begin to see the real skills of individual team members. They become clearer, I think, to everybody. So, I mean, that's, that's um, that's my take on how you could begin to change the culture. In terms of changing Shall I go on now to talk a little bit about how you might, what seems to work to change um, the composition of the workforce?
1: Absolutely, please do.
0: Um, What we see is when we look at innovations in companies that are designed to change the systems, either to change the core system or to create a shadow system that um, does some of the same things in slightly different ways. Um, and to change the systems in permanent and structural ways, we we see um, permanent structural changes in what the workforce looks like. So for example, um, about 20% of firms do special recruitment programs where they go to historically black colleges, they go to Latinx serving institutions, they go to engineering schools that have large student bodies comprising women. Um, And when they institutionalize that, um, for one thing, it's a recognition that Historically, the recruitment pattern—the recruitment patterns have been in most of these firms to go to, say, the Big Ten and the Ivy League and stop there. So to go to historically white schools, um, and you're not going to get a full representation of Latinx and Black uh, graduates if you ignore the schools that are that serve them so i mean this is called special recruitment but i just see it as broadening the recruitment to include all groups and if you institutionalize that this is one of the most effective things that that um, employers can do so and so one reason it works is because you're you're usually sending existing managers to these schools to schools that you haven't recruited at before um and they find people to recruit and they bring them back. And then, if you're the manager, has recruited somebody. I mean, it's just like when you've, well, when you when when people go to recruit at Harvard or at University of Michigan or Michigan State. Um, if you recruit somebody, you feel responsible for them. So when you come back, they're that that's your person, and you know if something bad happens to them, you want to make sure that. Um, it doesn't happen again, for example, they get the wrong manager. So um, so institutionalizing new systems for recruitment is one thing that is highly effective. Um, institutionalizing a system for mentoring people, the problem with most mentoring, most companies don't have a formal mentoring system where everybody is offered a mentor. So what we see is that companies that put in formal mentoring systems um, see significant increases in women and people of color in, man- in management after a few years, especially when those systems target um, women or target people of color. So make sure that all women and people of color are offered a mentor. Um, and institutionalizing that kind of system Can make up for the fact that white men usually find mentors without any help. Because, you know, I've been in in this situation in academia where there's a golden boy in the whatever department you pick your department, everybody wants to be his mentor. And they hired a Hispanic woman in the same year, and nobody's stepping up to volunteer to mentor her for some reason. so if you put in a formal mentoring program, it works in academia as well as in, uh, as in the corporate world. Um, you make sure that she gets offered a mentor. And what we see in the corporate world, there have been a bunch of studies of this, is that um, young white men often say, I, you know really I don't need any more mentoring, thank you." And women and po- people of color are much more likely to say yes and to sign up to uh, asked to have a mentor because they don't have a mentor. So if you institutionalize that, what you're doing is you're you know institutionalizing a system that's been an informal system that's been very successful in helping uh, white men with their careers, making it f- a formal system that you um, in which you're sh- you're certain that you offer the same opportunities to women and people of color. So I think, I think you get the idea. I mean, you need to companies need to think about every kind of um, system they have, and think about how they could expand it to be more inclusive and to make sure that all groups are included in the recruitment, in say internal training. Make sure that all groups get offered tr- all training opportunities. Uh, make sure that all groups get offered mentors now different you know different industries need different things accounting is a little different from consulting is a little different from manufacturing so and i'll just i'll just mention one other innovation that's been very successful diversity councils have been very successful because what they do is they look at the data from hr that are in the HR information system on, are we hiring enough African-American men? Are we promoting enough Asian-American women? You look at the data and then they they brainstorm for solutions that are specific to the firm and industry. So if you're consult- in consulting, maybe the issue is that Asian-American women are not getting the high profile clients. And so they don't end up getting promoted because they don't have the track record and they haven't brought in the, the big bucks. So um, a, uh, a diversity council or task force can look at the numbers, brainstorm for solutions when they see a problem, when they see a bottleneck in the career system for a particular group, or they see a group is exiting at a, at a, at a problematic rate. And then they can, uh, they can bring those solutions back to their departments. So I guess I would say, you know, companies need to try to change all of the system to make them more inclusive, but they also need to institutionalize some way to keep looking at where the problems are because you solve a problem this week, you're gonna have another problem next week. If you weren't recruiting enough Asian Americans because of where you are and now you are recruiting enough, then you're gonna have a retention problem or then you're gonna have a, a um, promotion problem among uh, mothers with, who have two children, for example. So just looking at the data and kind of trying to institutionalize the process of revolutionizing systems or rethinking systems, I think is, is one of the most important things you can do. Everything I've been talking about in this segment has huge positive effects on managerial diversity. And some of the things are not even very expensive to do. I
1: have one last question for you, Frank. This is such a fascinating conversation. 2020, 2021. Wow, what a year! A pandemic, um, uh, you know, economic downturn, um, things that happen, but uh, social unrest after the deaths of. Uh, George Floyd and Breanne Taylor, people who are looking at issues of equity and inclusion have thought, have been scared that maybe all of this attention toward diversity, equity, and clu- inclusion is a moment, not a movement. So I know you talked about ways of institutionalizing, way of routinizing types of behavior so that these things have become a permanent type of structure within the organization. Do you feel that organizations are shifting um, toward DEI work because they see the value in it? Or do you think that it's performative in the sense that you're trying to put on a show Or do you think legal compliance is their um, driving force for wanting to do this? And if it's one of the, if it's like the latter two, performative or legal uh, compliance, do you feel that these ways of institutionalizing things will make it more embedded within the culture so that it's sustainable? I know that was a long question, so I apologize.
0: That was, that was a lot of questions, but to, I was thinking two, but then I thought maybe there are four questions there. But um, well, uh, it's interesting to think about legal compliance. Let me try to tackle that first and, and take that off the table. Um, there was a lot of action last year um, in firms. Firms did a lot of soul searching because of the Black Lives Matter, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and uh, uh, that was happening in a context of very low enforcement activity. Mm-hmm. And it was looking like Trump would be reelected. And of course, some people say he was reelected. I, know, I don't told what those people, but it was looking like he was going to be reelected. and it, and if he had been reelected,, it's clear that the enforcement activity would would remain very low. So I don't think that companies were particularly afraid of litigation. And I have to say the big picture is that because of various um, federal court decisions, it is harder to sue somebody for discrimination than it used to be. Mm-hmm. and it's very hard to get a class action um, certified, which is usually the basis for any large suit. There haven't been a lot a lot of large federal judgments lately, so, I, I honestly don't think that litigation is what worries companies I think it's it's bad press and you know we saw with Sephora and Starbucks that you know you can get some pretty bad press for one or two egregious but nonetheless rare incidents or It's hard to know how rare they are, but you can get a lot of bad bad press for one or two things. So I do. I think that it may be performative in some cases because, and I say that in part because what organization didn't come out with a statement in favor of Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. And some of the organizations, you know, you look at like you know Amazon was very very quick to come out. I mean, their, their treatment of workers is arguably not what it might be. You know, they're not famous for. And worker rights, including right to immunization. I mean, they're they're, they're so um, that makes it, that makes it look performative. So, but to answer your final question, I do think indeed that um, if organizations institutionalize changes by changing their systems for hiring, for training, for mentoring, and also for rethinking the the personnel system and the career system through a diversity council that's institutionalized. I do think that that's a way to institutionalize change. You know, people have been saying, ah, this is a moment, it may not last. It feels bigger than that, but it's felt bigger than that before. And I just just think back to the Me Too movement.
1: You're right.
0: I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, it felt like everything about harassment in the workplace would change. I mean, I—it's not clear to me that much has changed, but it's also pretty clear that we're not really talking about that right now. You're right. And um, I would worry that that'll happen again. Um, that'll happen with this with this movement. Uh, you know, I think one th- one thing that that favors the movement is it looks like the economy will be booming. And. Uh, booming times are a good time for us to be talking about diversity because nobody is put off nobody feels threatened in the white community in the way they do when the economy is tanking you know so i'll just say one thing about the last recession during the great recession i i know a lot of diversity managers i can't tell you how many people called me and asked me if I had job I had ideas for places for them to apply because the wow. because the diversity unit had been downsized to zero. Wow. You know, a lot of companies trimmed or cut entirely the, the the diversity and inclusion unit. So but the good news is right now it looks like we're gonna have boom time. So I suppose those units will survive. Well
1: that's a great way to end this segment or this episode. Frank Dobbin, Harvard University, thank you. You are amazing. I appreciate your work. I, I appreciate your commitment to this cause. And maybe one day I'll ask you to come back and have a follow-up talk with us.
0: Well, the feeling is mutual on all fronts and um, I'd love to come back so, sometimes. So thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. And thanks. For every, to everyone for listening to this episode of People Talk. I hope that you join us for another episode next week. New episodes are available every Thursday. Thanks and be well.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of People Talk with Angela Hall. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe to our show.